beautiful song. Thank you for the congregational singing this morning. I appreciate your attendance and your interest in coming to worship the Lord. Let's open our Bibles to Jude 11. We're also going to spend a great deal of time in the Old Testament today as we look at three examples of the danger of defying God. Three examples of the danger of defying God. Would you consider it a tragedy if you spent your whole life thinking you were worshiping God only to be going down the path of destruction? I think most of us would consider that a tragedy. We do consider that uh, a terrible development in anyone's life where they delude themselves into thinking that they understand things clearly and it turns out that they understood nothing at all. And there is the real danger within the context of being a congregation and within, within the framework of being a church and associated with a church. There is uh, the real danger that we can delude ourselves into thinking that we understand the truth, yet we will be eventually exposed to have come under deception. And I think for a, tw a 21st century American congregation, what, we're going, what we have been looking at and what we're going to look at today is a, is a real challenge. I'm hoping that maybe the developments of the last year have made it less of a challenge, but it still is a real challenge for us. And here's the real place where I want to try and hopefully draw you into the scriptures this morning. And I want to ask you this question. Are you bored with being biblical? Are you bored with being biblical? Would it be nice... If we would just say, well, you know, it's the 21st century. We should have a church that fits the 21st century. What does that look like? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we update our ideas? Shouldn't we update our worship? Yes, I know we've, we have these, these kind of normal ways that we go about things. But shouldn't we put everything on the table and reevaluate it? Shouldn't we consider worship for a 21st century? Shouldn't we consider ethics for a 21st century? Shouldn't we consider morality for a 20 for the 21st century? And yeah, we may at times come into areas where it's a little bit murky and where we may push the boundaries of scripture. But it's only through pushing the boundaries of Scripture, perhaps, that we could find worship that we find more enjoyable and more satisfying. And what if it turns out that on the other side of pushing these boundaries, that we find that people like it a little bit better, and they're attracted to it, and so they might come into our church, and we might have more people wouldn't that be great if we could do that? 
All right, now, I'm just going to let that hang out there for a little bit. Because my guess is, and I, I hope I'm wrong with this congregation, but my guess is for most congregations, those questions are difficult to argue against. Because they include things like new ideas, pushing the boundaries, innovations. And on the other side of that is something we like better. Or potentially something that has greater appeal to the broader world. And those are things that Americans like. We like those things. They appeal to us. We understand in the broader world, don't we, that ideas shouldn't be stagnant. At least if you're going to have a flourishing business, you should always be innovating. We're, we're like Athens where Paul went in Paul's day, but it's just a human characteristic. There's always this appeal to the idea that there could be some new, better thing out there. And our lives could be made better. Our churches could be made better. Our families could be made better if we could just discover what that new philosophy is, what that new idea is, what that new invention or new innovation is. It could revolutionize everything for us. And old, established, traditional, that holds us back. That holds us back. We can't get to where we want to go if we stay there. All right, now, one thing I hope that you will readily understand in everything I just presented to you in its application to church is this. Church is not about what we like. And if it is, church is about the wrong thing. Church is not about what appeals to the world. If it is, it's about the wrong thing. God didn't save us to then pursue what we like. Jesus didn't die so you and I could then convert what we call worship into what really makes us happy. The Bible is consistent on this key point. Any proper understanding of God leads us to acknowledge his authority and to live within the framework and boundaries that God has established for us. And guess what? Those have never changed. Those have never changed. They, were, they existed in the Garden of Eden the Bible reveals them now. They're always the same. There's nothing new about you and me. And if you're, if you're unclear on that point, I refer you to the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new about us. There may be something new about the technology we have. There may be something new about the forms and modes of dress that we use. Other than that, a human being is a human being, and that's been true since the fall of Adam and Eve till now. 
and God's word is still just as equally applicable. And the people who present a danger to us and who present a danger to the integrity of the word of God are the people who say, well, we ought to do something different. We ought to do something new. I know what God has said, but that doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to us. There's something that we want to try different, no matter what God has said. And inherent in that attitude is a rejection of the authority of God and the authority of His Word. We fall for the deception that, and this is a societal problem, we currently fall for the deception that the observance that there are other possibilities about how to live, about how to worship, about how to be governed, about how to define marriage, about how to define a family, or even about the way people think that you can go to heaven when you die, we fall for the deception that observing the existence of other possibilities equates to the irrelevance of what God has said to be true. No, the power to observe that other people live in other ways or that there are other ways to give definitions has no bearing at all on what the truth is. False doctrine challenges God's exclusive claim to be the source of all genuine authority and truth. And we're going to look at three biblical examples this morning of people who defied the authority of God and who wanted to do things in a different way for their own reasons. And these three examples serve as a permanent warning to us that defying God leads to our own destruction. So, let's look at Jude 11. Our three examples will be those that Jude gives. And the warning will be the warning that Jude, of course, communicated under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So, Jude writes in verse 11, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now, Jude, of course, has presented the false teachers in a way that's similar to the error of Satan, that's similar to the behavioral and, and uh, uh, sexual errors that were present among the people of Israel as they traveled in the wilderness out of Egypt and among the people who occupied the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and those that surrounded them. Jude has explained that the false teachers are under the judgment of God and that they are under the same judgment that God has already 
borne out or meted out or held in reserve for those who reject his authority and for those who then live outside of the boundaries that God's own person and God's own word naturally establishes for his creation. Consequently, consequently, where the errors of the false teachers lead are long known. They lead to judgment and they will eventually lead to destruction. And this is why I asked you a minute ago about the, the tragedy of being deluded. These false teachers have secretly made their way in. They are passing themselves off as preachers of the truth. They are presenting themselves as people with new revelation from God. And that new revelation from God happens to stand in contrast to the established teaching of the word of God. And yet they are there presenting their dreams, their new revelations as, uh, as that which unfolds a new ethic, a new morality, a new way of living. And Jude is concerned of the appeal of the new ideas. Not just because it's transgressive. Not just because it's the other or it pushes the limits. But because false doctrine has real eternal consequences for those who are willing to listen to it. And for those who are open to being deluded by it. And so, there is an eternal danger. There is an eternal danger to false doctrine, whether it's recognized by the people who come under its sway. And there is a real appeal of new ideas and therefore of false doctrine to people who do not have settled in their minds that God and God alone is the authority for what is true and right and good. And there apparently is an appeal that new ideas have to God's own people, to believers. It can have a real appeal and thus there needs to be this warning. Now, as I've said many times through this study, we are involved in a long-standing struggle. It, it predates us. It will continue to the next generations after us. We do not represent anything new. We are involved in this struggle that has been in existence perhaps even before the fall of Adam and Eve in the case of angels and definitely since the Garden of Eden. Now, in verse 11 that we just read, Jude continues the language of judgment. That language of judgment is represented in the very first word of verse 11, the word woe. The word woe can mean a horror or a tragedy. It can express a tragedy, but it really is an expression of judgment. It's an expression of intense hardship 
or disaster or as Jesus uses it routinely in the Gospel of Luke, it is a form, a biblical form, of the pronunciation of judgment. So it is the observation of horror at the distress of those who come under the judgment of God. A tragic situation then is being observed excuse me, by Jude. These individuals who've made their way in among the recipients of his letter, who are presenting themselves as those who belong to the truth, who apparently until Jude's letter may not even be distinguishable from those who are genuine believers. There is a tragedy, a horror to be observed. And there is distress and future hardship that lies ahead for these individuals because they are going to be recipients of the eternal judgment of God in the same way that the angels who rebelled were, in the same way that the unbelievers in Sodom and Gomorrah were, and in the same way that all other unbelievers will experience. Being associated with the truth or using the truth as a cover for your unbelief does not fool God. And consequently, there is you, if you are really an unbeliever who lives in defiance of God's authority, you are representative of a horrific and tragic set of circumstances. And so Jude pronounces woe upon these individuals. Then he explains why. Why are they under the judgment of God? Why is their situation so tragic? And why are they dangerous to anyone who loves the truth of God, who acknowledges God's place and authority, and who wants to live in obedience to him? Well, he explains. He explains why their situation is so tragic. And we have three biblical examples that follow that illustrate their error of both thinking and action and their error of judgment. And so Jude begins with Cain. Cain serves as a consistent biblical example of jealousy and defiance leading to murder. Now, he, he says here in verse 11, and I want to investigate just for a second the actual terminology he uses about Cain because it's rather interesting, I think. He says they have gone, literally they have proceeded in the way of Cain. To use a similar, well, we have an expression that approximates the meaning of the actual words. They've gone down the road of Cain. They've proceeded down the road of Cain. Now, the word way in Scripture, whether Old Testament or New Testament, it, yeah, it comes from a word, the, word, the Hebrew word derek, that means road, or the Greek word hodos, from which we get like your odometer in your vehicle. It's just the word for a road, a path. So an odometer measures the road. It measures the path that you've gone down. 
The terminology refers to the physical structure of a road that you can observe, but whether Old or New Testament, the word way is used in a figurative sense, extending from the literal meaning. And it refers to a mode of life, a way of behavior. Now, we generally associate Cain with a single act. But here, Jude is extending our thinking about Cain beyond a single act. We should think about Cain as exemplifying an entire mode of behavior. There is something about Cain's way of living, his view his theological viewpoint, the way he lived his life, there is something about Cain that is exemplary of a mode of lifestyle. And whatever that mode of lifestyle is, the false teachers have. And in fact, anyone who contradicts the word of God goes down this way of living. By definition. So let's think about Cain for a minute. What's so bad about Cain? Is it just his murder? Or was there something more? Alright, so let's go look at Genesis 4 for a minute. And then we're going to look at 1 John 3. Genesis 4. We won't have a chance to investigate all of these with depth. But we'll at least... Hopefully hit the high points. Now, Genesis 4, we're going to begin in verse 3, which gives us our relevant information. And remember, what we're looking for here for a moment is a way of life, an attitude, and a lifestyle. So in Genesis 4 and 3, this is after the fall of Adam and Eve. In fact, it's this that serves as our first biblical example that man has the ability to conceive and plan of evil and then carry it out. And here it is. In verse 3, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you wroth, and why has your countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall be its desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Now let me ask you a question. It's a simple question. It's this. Was there a problem with Cain before he ever committed murder? Was there an error that he had already made before he ever got to the act of murder? The answer clearly from Genesis is yes. 
we presented in the verses we just read? Cain and Abel offered sacrifices, didn't they? They went to worship God. Cain brought of a certain type of sacrifice, didn't he? He brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Abel brought of the firstlings of his flocks and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. Cain and Abel both made an act of worship to God. They offered a sacrifice. Cain offered of the fruit of the ground. Abel offered from the flock. God had respect to the offering of Abel. And this made Cain angry. Who was he angry at? Was he angry just at Abel? No. Cain was angry with God. And it was visible on his face. His physical appearance projected his anger, his wrath, his jealousy. It wasn't just internalized. There was a physical appearance to Cain, as you probably can tell when people are angry or when something is said or something happens that they didn't expect and suddenly the whole appearance of their face changes. Cain was angry. And so God comes to Cain and he talks with him. Notice how God speaks with Cain. Verse 6. The Lord said unto Cain, Why are you wroth and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you, will you not be accepted? There's the terminology. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, what did God do with the sacrifice of Abel? He accepted it and he accepted Abel. So God has rejected Cain and his sacrifice and he has done so apparently on the basis that what Cain did, he didn't do right. In other words, Abel didn't just have, he didn't just luck into the kind of sacrifice that pleased God. And that both Cain and Abel, you know, they were just trying things out. It could have gone either way. And, and Cain offered his sacrifice of the fruit of the ground. And Abel offered his sacrifice of the fruit of the ground. I mean, of the, of the firstlings of the flock. And, and this was just kind of trial and error to see what works. This was not going on at all. Cain knew full well what type of sacrifice God wanted. And Cain purposely didn't offer that kind of sacrifice. In fact, in the letter of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice to God than Cain. In other words, what Cain did in Genesis 4 was the product and manifestation of his unbelief. 
And so he acted out in defiance of God. It is a defiance of God that would see its way all the way to the murder of Abel. He knew what the boundaries were. He knew what right was. And God told him so. He told him, you know what's right. You just have to do what's right. This situation can be rectified. Notice also, there's so much here to learn about Cain. Notice that when God did not accept Cain's sacrifice, who Cain got mad at? Not at himself. There wasn't, dis there wasn't personal disappointment. There wasn't an attitude of repentance and, Oh Lord, I, I know I shouldn't have done this. I repent of my actions. No. Cain defied God and then got angry when God didn't accept it. He was trying to impose his own view of things upon God. And it didn't work. And so he got angry at God for his own personal defiance of God. This should sound well, like everyday life to you anymore. This isn't all that revolutionary. It's the way we live now. People are dissatisfied with the Bible. They're dissatisfied with the idea of the authority of God. They want to live in a different way. They want to do different things. And it angers them to tell them that God won't just accept anything. That while it may be true, you can, you can live and worship in a different way. It will not make the way you live, the way you worship, right. If you want to live right, if you want to worship right, if you want to believe right, if you want to understand right, you must come to God on God's terms. And genuine believers want to do that. Unbelievers are perfectly content to pretend to do that. Now, let's look at the, the further act of defiance real quickly. Look at 1 John 3. I hope you held your place there. 1 John 3, Cain is used in as, as an example by the Apostle John of the opposite of brotherly love. The discussion is much deeper, but I want you to see the defiance in the murder of Abel. This is shocking terminology. Verse 12, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, he's satanic, he's of the devil, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now what's interesting here is the terminology that John uses for slay. The word that's translated slew, if you're looking along at the King James Version, maybe it's translated as kill or murder in the version you're looking at. It is a very strong Greek word that refers to the slitting of the throat of an animal in sacrifice. In other words, what John is contending is this. 
when God came to Cain and said, If you do well, will you not be accepted? Rather than repenting and doing what he knew what was right, Cain continued in his defiance of God and said, Fine, you want a blood sacrifice? I will give you one. And it's not going to be of a goat or of a lamb. If you want to sacrifice, I'll slit the throat of my brother. It wasn't just that he murdered Abel. He murdered Abel as an act of defying what he knew God wanted. It was an insult to God. Not just an act of hate toward his brother. Now think about this. The false prophets, they're living the life of Cain. He's not saying that they're living the life of murderers, not yet at least. What he means is that they are as defiant of the authority of God. They want to poke their finger in the eye of God as much as they possibly want to do. As much as they possibly can. That's what they want to do. They will not acknowledge God's inherent personal authority. They will not live in his word. They will not worship the way he teaches to worship. They want to defy God. And that is a matter of, the way, of their way of life. That is a fact, a reality of the way they live. Now, before we get too eager to say they and we, let's just stop and ask, what characterizes your life? What characterizes our lives, our church? Defiance of God? I mean, all Cain did was try something new. What's wrong with that? See, there's the way you get to it. He just tried something new. Yes, God had said I want a blood sacrifice, but Cain just tried something new. Notice how all our studies are joining together for a minute. Uh, what's wrong with moving the ark of God on a new cart? Does it have to be with sticks by Levites? Can it just be by a new cart? Who cares? Did we really have to kill all these animals from the Amalekites, I mean, after all, I know that God said to kill them all, but we saved some back for worship. What could be wrong with that? Yes, 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 I know we're skirting the boundaries of what God had told us, but we're going to do it in worship. We're going to do it in his name. It's not like Cain said, after all, I'm not going to worship you at all. He just didn't happen to agree with the way of established worship. Isn't that okay? It's just an innovation. It's just trying something new. What could possibly be wrong with that? And what's wrong with that is the inherent attitude toward God that is built into it. You reject his authority. Example number two. Let's very quickly look at these other two in Jude. We now, we move from Cain, or Jude moves from Cain, the example of Cain, to the example of Balaam, who now serves as an example of greed and defiance 
leading to fornication. One led to murder, another is now going to lead to fornication. So, in Jude, verse 11, he says that they have run greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. For reward. Now, you can read their whole, there are about uh, four chapters of the book of Numbers devoted to the story of Balaam. Balaam was a practicer of divination. He was a practicer of divination that was hired by the Midianite kings to uh, pronounce a divine curse upon the people of Israel as they made their way into the promised land. Balaam was specifically told by the Lord who intervened on behalf of the people of Israel He was specifically told by the Lord that he could not pronounce a curse upon his people. Balaam, though, Balaam wanted the money. And so while he could not defy God outright, what he did instead was teach Balak how... He could cause God to become angry with the people Israel. Balaam was motivated by greed, which is what Jude focuses upon here, where he says they ran, they ran greedily after the error or the deception of Balaam for reward. The word reward means pay. What he intends to say is that the false teachers, like Balaam, are motivated to defy God in hopes of gaining money. So, as the writer of Numbers in Numbers 31 and 16 observes, as Moses spoke to the people of Israel, he says this about Balaam. He says that on Balaam's advice, he caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. What did he do? Balaam taught the Midianites. Balaam taught the Midianites to send their their young ladies among the people of Israel and to intermarry with them. And the people of Israel went out because of their interest in fornication and they began worshiping the Baals. He did all of this for the pay. Thirdly, and lastly, we have the example of Korah. Yet again, defiance leading to destruction. Now, the story of Korah we should take a look at very quickly. I know we're at the end of our time, but we've got just enough time to look at it. I do want to spend some time looking at it because it's briefer. If you'll look in Numbers with me now, the book of Numbers chapter 16. Watch what happens here. Now, there's a triggering event for Numbers 16. And that event is that a man has just been put to death. He's been stoned to death for defying the law of God about gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. 
And this is going to cause a furor among some within Israel. And there's going to be questions about Moses and Aaron's priestly authority. So in number 16, we read now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, that is, they brought a group of, of individuals, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous, that is, well-known in the congregation, men of renown, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. Now what's going on here? Korah is leading a band of men who are coming to Moses and all they're observing is this. God's among us all. So who are you to be the leaders? Who are you to be the leaders? There are other possible candidates. It doesn't matter that God has already set aside Aaron as the high priest. It doesn't matter that Moses had been chosen by God to be the leader of the people of Israel. We're all equal here, Moses. God's spirit's among us all. So who says you're in charge? We can be in charge too. We have just as much right to have a say in what's going on here as you do. There are other possible candidates, so that means you shouldn't have the authority you have. Moses immediately understands what's going on. In fact, the next day, what he's going to do is pose a contest. After all, the sons of Korah, they were from the tribe of Levi too, so Moses is going to have them put put fire in censers and he's going to have Aaron and his sons put fire in censers and then we'll let the Lord answer whether we've looked at this thing correctly or not. And what will eventually happen, of course, is that the ground is going to open up and it's going to destroy many people within Israel who sided with Korah. The point is this. Korah and his family and those who joined with him refused to acknowledge the authority of God to choose who his priests were. And instead, they wished to insist that because God was present among all Israel, that just anyone could project themselves into these positions and Moses and Aaron's authority, therefore, was not derived from God. It was just something they put upon themselves. And so basically, Korah's there saying, well, Who are you? Who are you to act as though you have the exclusive, that you have the exclusive corner on the truth and that, 
and that we can only worship God and serve God if Aaron and his sons are the priests. Who are you to say that? It could be a different way. And notice that they're not saying outright we defy the Lord. No, the Lord's among us. The Lord has given his sanction to this. He's here among us all. Boy, all this kind of seems subtle, doesn't it? When we look at the events, it does strike us over the head as outright, but generally speaking, we might be inclined to say, well, this seems all kind of trivial. I mean, they're arguing over who's in charge. Cain just wanted to try out a new way of sacrifice. Balaam, he just wanted to get paid. What could be wrong with that? But it's what all of these, all of these motivations, all of these different things are masks for what was really at stake with the three examples given. What's really at stake is the acknowledgement of God and his own personal authority. There may be other ways of doing things, but if they are outside the boundaries of the word of God, they aren't right. The only way to do what's right whether it's what we believe on salvation, what worship is, what our practices are, what our doctrines are, the way we live our lives, the only way to do it right is to do it within the bounds of God, that God has set. And it requires a healthy understanding of God's person in order to be willing to live that way. An unhealthy view of God will let the thought worm its way into your head. I don't have to pay attention to what God says here. I can do something else. I can try something else. Are we a people that live under God's authority? Or are we only a people who pretend to do so while we really seek to serve our own purposes and our own interests. A healthy view of understanding our relationship with Christ should demonstrate itself in our willingness to live within the boundaries of God's own person and his own revealed will. It is a dangerous question whenever anyone says, don't you think we ought to try something new? Or what would it hurt if just this one time we did something different? At inherent in that question is defiance of the authority of God. And that person should not be listened to they should not be heard. We want to live as God has taught us to live. We want to believe in worship as God has taught us to believe in worship. We can only do that when we contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints and we stay within the framework and boundaries of the word of God and its authority. Thank you very much for being here this morning. I'll ask you to join me in standing. I invite you to be with us tonight as we reconvene to worship. We'll be looking at the consequences of David putting the ark of God on a new cart.